0: This episode contains strong themes that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Season 2 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation, as well as experts. Yes, those people who have decided to completely disregard this decade. Well, we're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, years of study trumps a three minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform, and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, here to challenge your understanding of the world around you, and hopefully not challenge your attention span. Nintendo, composed of three Japanese kanji characters, roughly translates to leave luck to heaven. Having started out as a hand-painted playing cards company back in 1889, Nintendo has transformed into a gaming giant within the industry. Beginning with the release of the Nintendo Entertainment System back in the 1980s, they made the first of many indemnable marks on the Western gaming experience. It signaled the beginning of a legacy that spawned seven home consoles, six handhelds, and countless franchises that have become household names worldwide, including Super Mario, Donkey Kong, The Legend of Zelda, Pokemon, and Splatoon. Yet one thing that the gaming industry has not been able to shake off, or, as Nintendo's name suggests, leave up to the heavens, is its long and troubled history of sexism and gender stereotypes. Besides the endless stream of video games portraying female characters as pawns, victims, and objects of male desire, the industry itself has been riddled with allegations of sexual misconduct and harassment. Such behavior reflects a blatant ignorance, a dismissiveness, and an unwillingness to fix an industry-wide problem. This brings us to 2014, when online gaming communities became ground zero for a series of heated discussions around sexual harassment and feminist discourse within the gaming world. Naturally, everyone got along and remained civil and we were all moved on with our lives. Well, that's not quite how the story goes, let's be honest. What started out as a series of discussions on online forums quickly turned into vicious and targeted harassment towards outspoken women working in the industry. Commonly known as Gamergate, this online hate campaign found refuge in a Twitter hashtag and a legacy of misogyny within the gaming industry. In today's episode, we speak to Brianna Wu, a celebrated software engineer and a co-founder of game developer Giant Spacecat. In 2014, Brianna was thrust into the center of the Gamergate saga, following her outspoken criticism of the movement. We will discuss how Gamergate's kernels of hate coalesced into a legitimate movement, how law enforcement responded, and the lessons we can take away from this conspiracy, in order to keep the next decade from producing a movement more vicious and devastating in its effects. Here to also join us is Professor Joseph Huzinski, An American political scientist specializing in the study of conspiracy theories. So I'm joined now by Brianna Wu. Uh, Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Amazing. If I could um, kick off by asking a little bit about your uh, professional background and how you got into the gaming industry.
1: Yes. You know, uh, I'm a software engineer. I got into the game industry, uh, interestingly enough, uh, around 2010. Um, Mm -hmm. I had been frustrated about the lack of women in games for boys since literally 1986 when I got the, uh, the NES and, you know, I wanted to play games with, uh, with girls as the protagonist and, uh, they just overwhelmingly did not exist. Uh, so, um, I had always expected it to get better throughout gaming history and it never really did. Uh, a really good example is Super Mario 2 with Princess Peach. She was a playable character there, uh, but she was not a playable character again for another 22 years afterwards. Like all these core games uh, had male protagonists. So around 2010, I could see that the, uh, the game industry was really changing. Uh, the number of women as a player base uh, had skyrocketed and I thought it would be a good idea to launch a game studio and hire a bunch of women and uh make games where girls got to be the hero the way that uh, boys always got to be the hero so i did that's amazing that's amazing
0: and i promised um, my colleagues that i wouldn't i wouldn't geek out too much on, on games <laughs> i'm gonna resist as much as possible
1: <laughs> we'll make that bonus content for our first second podcast
0: <laughs> exactly exactly um but it, it's interesting that you mentioned about you know um female playable characters and it's something that i think anybody that has ever played games will have either passively noticed or or, or or noticed um uh quite uh quite aggressively depending on when when you started playing um do you think the gaming industry suffers from a sexist past or in, or enduring kind of sexist attitudes would you say
1: I I think uh, it's not my opinion. I think you can uh, just go look at history books. Uh, Something really strikes me is when the Nintendo Entertainment System was brought to the United States. Um, They made a very deliberate uh, choice uh, to market it to boys. Uh, and to deliberately exclude girls. Uh, You can actually go look at that marketing plan. It will show we're targeting boys uh, five to 10. Um, When the Super Nintendo came out, I believe in 1992, they literally dusted off that marketing plan and said, okay, now we're targeting boys from uh, five to 15. Uh, Something that's very interesting is in the Atari era, uh, there were a lot more women involved in the game design. And because of that, uh, with games like Pong, for instance, Uh, it wasn't deliberately targeted towards boys. If you look at something like uh, those early issues of Nintendo Power through the 80s and 90s, you can see they were exclusively uh, going after boys. So um, I think it is very much a decision our industry has made.
0: So and and this is something that has always baffled me because if you kind of have the, the most capitalist view of a business, right? And obviously game studios are, are businesses at the end of the day, right? You make a game, you you sell it for, for money and you, you ideally want to make a profit. Um, and if you think about it from the kind of purest form of just, just money making, the idea of excluding um, a half of the world, essentially, I mean, you know, women and just deciding, you know, we are not want to go after them kind of cuts your your potential profit in half. So I just I I, it, yeah, I, struggle I think to that's the logic. dead
1: on. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's dead on. Uh what, what is really interesting to me is if you look at early attempts to court women gamers and girl gamers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, go look at the early Barbie games on NES, right? And look at the gender of when you roll the credits and see who actually developed it. It was, uh, you know, just a ton of men. And, Mm -hmm. you know, these games are, they're they're pink and kind of insulting, right? (laughs) And their simplicity. Uh, It's kind of an insulting idea of what girls want to play. Contrast that with, uh, you know, the Nancy Drew games that exploded in the 90s and what was different about that uh well they brought a bunch of women on to actually design the gameplay and the characters and it it rings a lot more true and those games are much more beloved because of that so you know um i think that as the player base has grown you know the average gamer is no longer a 10-year-old boy it's Statistically, a forty-one-year-old woman. So it's just always struck me that we are we're really stuck in this uh, mindset about who gamers are. Um, and I could tell you, as an industry, as someone who has seen the industry at the highest levels. It's because we're very much a pattern-based. Uh, we're we're very pattern-based in how we make decisions. If you've got a hundred million dollars on the table uh, that you're investing in a game, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to do the same thing you did last time that made money. You're going to hire the same people. You're going to have the same kind of characters because of the risk, you're right? To, right, because of risk. And um, even when play testing the games. You're going to bring in the exact same kinds of players, which tend to be, uh, you know, men between 15 and 30, uh, which is why games tend towards this very hardcore uh, set of assumptions that you've been playing games your whole life it's just a, a series of decisions that we make along the way that really exclude, um, a lot of players. And I don't think any of it's malicious. I do think it's all very unexamined, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I, I think it does. And it, it's, it's almost like the, you know, it's the idea of always of that, that, that argument that I think anybody that, that argues against, I think is deluded that, um, you know, to have a well-rounded workforce means having a diverse workforce because diverse voices, diverse experiences lead to to a better product at the end of the day. That, that covers a, a wider audience. And if if most developers at the time um, were men, and the people that were only that, that were allowed to go through the door or allowed to go through a certain ceiling were men, they're going to make decisions. You know, that fit the gaming stereotype of what a, of, of a boy or a man, but they're not going to be able to make games that. That appeal to a to a wider to a wider um, to a wider audience, I guess.
1: A hundred percent, you know, look at the first person shooter genre, right? Mm. To me, one of the freshest, most innovative ideas to come out of that genre in years was Splatoon when it came out a few uh, years ago. Uh, For people that may not know this, instead of uh, trying to murder everything in sight, this is a Nintendo game that's about uh, two sets of squids that are inking the board in front of them. And then the winner is whoever has inked a giant percent, a bigger percentage of the board. So it's kind of this more indirect first person shooter gameplay. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that development team had that's very important is a pretty much 50 50 gender balance. And I think because of that, you've got a smash hit game that was really genre defining. Uh, it, it really broke new barriers and it brought in an entire new segment of, of, of players. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't I think the strongest argument for this. Yeah, it's the right thing to do. Um, it's also the smart thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, don't leave people uh, on the table that would otherwise play your game.
0: The lack of diversity and inclusion within the gaming industry isn't new, nor is it exclusive to this field. For years, women have rightfully been asking for their voices to not only be heard, but taken seriously. From inside the walls of our political institutions to the many protests outside, women have courageously spoken out for change, only to be targets of anger and harassment. In that vein, what was Gamergate and how did it begin?
1: So Gamergate was a backlash against um, women in the game industry they've kind of been pushing for better representation um, and better hiring practices within game studios it really started um in the public eye with a woman named uh, anita Sarkeesian, who was kind of a you know an academic you know not a game developer not a game journalist really just a, an academic with i believe master's degree who uh wanted to just uh, produce some youtube videos um kind of uh uh, examining uh, tropes in games and some of the ways that uh, the the messages we were sending our player base were, were sexist. And because of that, uh, gamers really freaked out and um, started to attack her in very, very personal ways. Uh, you had actual uh, game developers within the industry creating flash games called Beat Up Anita Sarkeesian, where you would pound on her face, it will get bloodier and bloodier, which is a a rather shocking and sexist thing for a professional to produce uh, in response to basically an academic critique of the industry. Um, From there, this kind of caught on fire. Um, You had a, a player base that was really relegated to sites like 4chan, like the darkest corners of the internet to, to uh, kind of harass women uh, in the industry and uh, in games journalism that were kind of advocating for a more equal workplace. Um, I found myself targeted when I was standing up for a woman named Samantha Allen, who was a game journalist uh, that had critiqued um, CBS for uh, once again, hiring only white straight men uh for one of their gaming outlets and um it was uh it was such i was targeted in such extreme ways they actually made a law and order episode about it
0: my god and jesus and we'll 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 get to um you know what happened when you when you got targeted and how in a sec but i I do want to ask before we before we get to that um as as a woman in the gaming industry um what was your experience working in in this industry like did you because you know we, we hear about you know everyday sexism we hear about um, sexism in workplaces in, in general um would you say in the gaming industry it's the same worse like what what been your experience leading up to game, of game?
1: I was I was really surprised uh, entering the game industry and founding a studio. you know I had come from the tech industry. Uh, before this. And, you know, I had run into my fair share of sexist men or, you know, people that were just um, kind of jerks without realizing it. Mm-hmm. And I had a certain playbook for dealing with it, you know, and um, but what I, what I really found when I entered the game industry was it was a, a level of overt sexism that, that truly took me aback. Um, you know, with small things like going to industry events and bringing my husband along and having uh, everyone assume he was the engineer and to treat me like the wife, which is fairly degrading, uh, to everything like facing massive structural barriers in trying to get funding and coverage for, uh, for my game. Um, you know, the game industry is very much a place where decisions are made with uh, men at the bar, hanging out with their boys uh, at three in the morning, right? It's the kind of crowd that's very difficult to fit into if you're not one of the boys. Um, so what I really found was, uh, for me to get any traction whatsoever, I had to take a much more active role in kind of asking to be treated, um, uh, to be given uh, the same chances everyone else was, uh, was receiving. It was, it was very shocking to be honest.
0: That's mad. And, um, Obviously you mentioned that you got yourself got targeted by the, the Gamergate community. Um, could you elaborate on that? Like, was there a, a, a specific point that you thought, Christ, this is, this is, this is me next, or was it kind of a a gradual kind of growth of, of, of harassment and and engagement online?
1: No, it was, it was a specific day that Mm -hmm. really made me one of the, uh, the major targets of Gamergate. Um, You know, I had been standing up for Samantha Allen and I had spent literally a month trying to get people in back channel to stand up for their women colleagues. Uh, You know, I'd written IGN, I'd written Game Informer. Uh, You know, I talked to people at the highest level saying, Hey, you know, your woman colleague over here is being harassed out of the industry. Do you think maybe you should do something about that? Like, isn't that your responsibility, and I'll never forget, I had a high-level editor, a game informer, uh, tell me flat out, he's like, not an industry issue. Uh, this is not a problem, this is some drama offline, which uh, really stunned me. Wow. And I realized that help was not coming from inside the industry, that it was gonna have to be uh, women standing beside each other. And I really wanna emphasize to you, um, there are not that many women in the game industry. Like we kind of tend to know each other. So when someone gets harassed out of the field, it's not a number on a spreadsheet. It's someone you know and Mm -hmm. someone that you care about. And I realized if I was ever going to leave the game industry, it wasn't going to be from burnout. It was going to be from having my heart broken so many times by uh, having women I care about leave and quit their careers. So I became very vocal in kind of asking the industry to stand up to this kind of harassment. And I got a call one day that 4chan was starting to, um, to investigate me in the same way they investigated, uh, Zoe Quinn and Samantha Allen, and, um, Anita Sarkeesian. And I remember logging in and I could see them running what I call the playbook. Um, this is where they start digging through your entire life to find something to, abuse you with, basically. So they'll come through your educational history, your work history. They'll come through every tweet you've ever made. Um, You know, they will look at all your professional work and they will basically bring together a mob to harass you about it. And I could see them organizing this mob online. And uh, I realized I had a choice to make. I could stay silent and I knew it would all blow over in a couple of days. If I kept my mouth shut, uh, I could just get back to my work in my studio Um, or I could keep speaking out and would become a major target. Um, I want to just take a second and say um, I grew up in Mississippi which is a state in the United States that is still really struggling with the legacy of racism. And I saw firsthand growing up uh, people that just kept their heads down and their mouths shut when things were happening that were wrong. And it was very important to me as an adult to keep my integrity, to sleep well at night, to call out things when I saw them. So I decided I was gonna keep speaking out. i will never forget this. Um, it was a tweet that went mega viral online. And it was, they said to me basically, um, guess what bitch, I know where you and Frank live. They then included my address. I said, uh, you're going to die tonight. Uh, I've got a K bar and I'm going to uh, shove it up your feminist cunt. I'm going to cut your husband's tiny Asian penis off and rape you with it until you plead. If you have any children, they're going to die tonight. You did nothing worthwhile with your life. And Jesus, that, that was, uh, that was a threat that was so serious. I, had to call the cops and um, you know, I left my home and, you know, from there, the games industry media wasn't covering it, but that was such an extreme event that the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Boston Globe, they started covering it. It was the beginning of starting to turn Gamergate around
0: i mean i mean first of all my god that that sounds insane um yeah you you mentioned um you you obviously got law enforcement involved for obvious reason um what was their response to the situation because that's a that's a death threat with 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 evidence that they know exactly where you live
1: Right. You know, it's it's weird, but when you get a lot of death threats, you kind of learn which ones you need to take seriously. Right. right. Um, you know, someone has your phone number, that gives you your address and says they're gonna kill you. That's obviously something you have to take more seriously. And this one was so specific that was something I did. Um, I really I think I was somewhat idealistic, um, because I I I truly thought that this was um, a case that was so extreme and was so public that even if law enforcement didn't personally care that there was so much public outcry about mm-hmm. it, that uh, it was going to set a very uh, a big precedent for the game industry. Uh, that's what I kind of naively thought. Um, what ended up happening is uh, the uh, Arlington Police Department uh, didn't really even know what Twitter was, Right. And eventually I caused so much of a fuss that it got kicked up to the uh, to the state uh, district attorney. Right. Um, They did nothing. Eventually, uh, Congresswoman Catherine Clark got involved and got the FBI interested in my case. And I was assigned an FBI agent and the FBI sat on it for uh, for many months and then did literally nothing. So what I found was uh, two things. The first is there's no clear jurisdiction in who prosecutes these kinds of threats online. Is it local? Is it state? Is it national? Um, The second thing is uh, there's just not much incentive to uh, prosecute these cases. Uh, The FBI, for instance, in the United States employs over 30,000 people as best as I can tell, there's no group there that specifically prosecutes uh, these kinds of credible death threats online. So unfortunately, uh, you can look at the number of threats and the number of reports and the number of cases that are brought, and you can reach the objective conclusion that help is not coming if you're threatened online in a a credible manner. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's
0: interesting because it's shocking and it isn't um, in terms of the law enforcement's reaction, partly because if you think, well, especially when it comes to, to online and tech, government is government and law always seem to play in catch-up. And it just seems like they are completely not, I mean, not just in the States, I think in the UK as well, we've got a lot in terms of our law enforcement's way of dealing with, with online hate and abuse. I think we've got a lot to answer for and reform in that respect. Um, and help wasn't coming from kind of law enforcement perspective um what were the men in your in your industry saying at this point considering that this thing had gone viral and people outside of the sector were now covering it was there any shift there
1: there was a little bit of shift there were a lot of promises that things were going to change and I would say you have a lot of window dressing, um publicly, right? right? Um, at the same time, something I ran into quite a bit were uh, men in our industry. They were very angry at me, saying, "Oh, by by making all this stuff national, you're giving gamers a bad reputation." You're so making victim a blaming, like as this. opposed
0: to going after the person that brutally exactly threatened you. right. Okay, exactly.
1: Like, um, and you know the other side of this that. You know, I don't really speak about that much, but what was so frustrating to me is, you know, I didn't get into games to make a political point. I got into games because I love games, right? Uh, and, and what was so frustrating is for me just standing up and being asked to be treated um, fairly, um, I became known in my industry as just that Gamergate woman, Right. Right. So all my skills as an engineer or a fundraiser or a product manager, um, none of those really mattered because I was primarily known as that woman that got death threats, which is very professionally belittling if you think about it.
0: Unfortunately, this is a story that we hear far too often. The radio silence in my agenda, from colleagues to those working in the industry, is a tragedy in and of itself. Brianna is a games developer. That's how she would like to be known. But in her decision to speak out, she became something else too. A figurehead and spokesperson in this mystifying culture war between a group of agitated gamers and, well, women. This didn't stop her though. Amidst the death threats and rape threats, Brianna continued to speak to media outlets about what was going on. Ironically, by attacking her so viciously, the Gamergate community provided her with a larger platform to call for the changes these very gamers were so terrified of. Whether or not the gaming industry has been receptive to those calls is a whole other question. And w- when when these um, death threats and harassment start coming in, and obviously that the kind of the pinnacle one, the one you described, what actions did you did you take following this like when when it got to that point
1: well i i filed every police report that i could Mm -hmm. and um the thing is uh, please understand that i've been run out of my home i was staying in a hotel i was genuinely afraid for my life and you've got to understand media started calling a lot And I realized that this was the moment that um, the industry wasn't going to make things better. And I reached inside of myself and I tried to get the strength to talked to every single media outlet that I could. Um, I did over 200 interviews in the next three months about what was going on in the game industry. And you can look at some of those clips of me. I look like a mess, and I am, because I've just been run out of my home. I've got raccoon eyes, my hair is an absolute disaster. Um, It was a real blow what was happening to me. and I really thought that this was going to be the moment that our industry took a beat and reflected and really changed our policies. Mm-hmm. You want know, to be really clear about this? Um, you know, I personally understand that there's always going to be some segment of the game market that wants hypersexualized content with women, right? Dead or alive volleyball, or you know, Sofia from Soul Blade. Uh, you know, that kind of hypersexualized representation of women is always going to exist. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is the hiring practices where there's not even a woman. Uh, in the decision-making loop to to have a voice about Mm -hmm. what kind of games are made i think that if we had a game industry that was less of a bros hiring their bros and more frankly merit-based i think that the games would kind of default to these stereotypes a lot less readily so I really believed this was going to be the moment that the game industry decided to change its ways. Um, That was eight years ago. And unfortunately, that was not true.
0: And on on top of that, of course, many of the women that were targeted by the uh, Gamergate community seems to have completely gone off off the radar. Yeah. Um, Was that something that you ever considered? when that when the kind of pinnacle of the whole I mean by the sounds of it no because your 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 responses to the death threats was to do a string of interviews which which to be honest is is, is remarkable and and <laughs> and uh and uh and amazing at the same time. Um but is that something that you ever thought, do you know what, Christ this just ain't worth it.
1: Oh, are you kidding me? Of course I did. I think there's a you know we're watching a bunch of Marvel films now about the multiverses, right? There's another <laughs> multiverse out there where I said nothing about Gamergate and I'm still running my game studio, right? Yeah. Um, it, it was very tempting. Um, to me, the question is, could I have lived for myself if I had done nothing, if I'd put myself first and had stayed out of that fight? Um, I just am not built that way. You know, um, I, again, I hope this isn't too personal a story to tell, but... I will never forget when um, I was a child in Mississippi and someone Jewish moved into my neighborhood. And I'm sitting around the table and we have a bunch of uh, relatives around. I believe it was Thanksgiving dinner. And someone there just starts making a ton of the most anti-Semitic remarks. And I was so young, I didn't even really understand what anti-Semitism was. I remember looking at all the adults and thinking to myself, um, why don't you say something? Why don't you do something? Like, this feels evil to me, right? And everyone just smiled and nodded, and the conversation went on. I, for the longest time, thought that trait was just Mississippi, but it's not. It's human nature. Um, what I find really remarkable about the game industry is we've shipped a thousand games where you are the lone hero that stands up and uh, rights a wrong. Yet when women and people of color and LGBT people are being so abused by our industry, everybody just keeps their head down. So um, got the irony I just, of that, right? Right. Right. It's it's I I think we're not really getting the messages of the uh, the product that we're shipping. So um, just for whatever reason, for me, it's it's important to try to to leave this industry better than I found it. And that doesn't mean, you know, screaming on Twitter. It doesn't mean, you know, canceling people. It means really pushing for the kind of structural reforms that can make this a better workplace for everybody right um i want the women to enter the game industry uh five years from today to have an easier time than we did
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and 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 that's and that's remarkable and what's the saying you know that um evil prevails of good people do nothing and i think it's exactly. it's, it's it, it could not be more true because it's not about um the kind of inequalities in this world it's about what you're ready to do to step up and actually make that change and it could be your local um area doesn't have to be massive, you know, systemic change. It could be, it could be a small change in, in your local area, but, um, it's, it's, it's more our failing for not doing anything or standing up when we hear inequalities happen than it is about those inequalities actually
1: happening. I, I really agree with that. I also, if you don't mind me saying, I think that social media is a bit of a, a trap on this. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we have a lot of discussion nowadays about, Uh, toxic culture and cancel culture. And to be honest, I think much of it is exaggerated. That said, there's a kernel truth there Mm -hmm. that I think, I think what social media has allowed us to do is to focus on awareness, right? Like we all want to put out tweets or talk about a problem or say what should be done about the problem to, to make people quote unquote aware. But It doesn't matter if you're aware if you don't have a concrete plan in place to address what happens when people are aware. Mm. And I feel that, unfortunately, what a lot of Gamergate has devolved into is a kind of holier-than-thou culture where everybody's talking about what should be done online. That's important, don't get me wrong, but what we also need are structural changes behind the scenes. You know, We need to examine our processes in which people are hired and promoted at game studios, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I know this is a podcast series about disinformation. We need actual policies, regulations. We need concrete things done about the role disinformation plays online, which by Mm -hmm. the way, was a huge component of Gamergate. So until we're kind of putting concrete actions into effect, the rest is ultimately just gonna be words.
0: Yeah, and I, and I'm, I'm, I I want to talk about that uh, that kind of element of, of of what disinformation you know played in 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 the harassment tactics. But but before that, I think you highlighted a really important point, which actually uh, again contributes to you know through through misinformation contributes to to a false sense of things being done. Um, where, for example, you will see on social media you know, a campaign happening about something. You know, it could be. Uh, the black square that everyone put up you know for, for, for Black Lives Matter and you had companies contributing to that square um, whilst also having gross inequalities and and, and um, situations of racism happening all at the same time and it kind of gives people a false sense of oh well I've contributed because I've liked a square it's like that's not a contribution to the discussion that's not a contribution to anything other than you satisfying your own ego and satisfying your own kind of uh you know guilt in actually not really doing anything kind of gives people a cop out almost in being able to say well i took part in this debate it's like no you didn't you liked the post
1: 100 uh, i think we thing. saw this with the with the me too movement right there was oh a God, lot yeah. of asking women to come forward and tell stories about their trauma right hashtag me too this happened to me um, and kind of reading that gave us a, a sense that things were being done. Well, what we really needed were, you know, people, uh, once tried and found guilty of sexual assault, uh, to actually be put in prison, right. Or to face consequences, <laughs> right, yeah. which you can look at those numbers and there's not much movement on that. Right. We needed, we needed structural change and we settled for, uh, feeling good, Um, you know, it's a pattern we see over and over again, I think, uh, with transgender people, right? You see, uh, everyone's so proud to post their pronouns online to show what an ally they are. That's great. And that's important. But what I think transgender people need is access to health care, right? Access to, um, you know, this kind of bread and butter, access to housing, access to education. So I think that if we care about these problems, we need to expect more from our leaders and expect more from ourselves.
0: When Gamergate was at its peak of media attention in 2014, that should have been the year the cultural conversation around online harassment, especially towards women, was taken seriously. Unfortunately, it wasn't. The seeds of misogyny had been germinating for years, had law enforcement and the media not been so quick to dismiss the link between online harassment and real-life violence perhaps we would be having a very different conversation today in its place the propaganda machine of disinformation has latched onto the digital landscape from the common friends of twitter posts to the fringe forums of 8chan
1: one of the things when you're targeted by disinformation, it's like there becomes two versions of you, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, there's, There's the real Brianna Wu, which is a, she's a fairly nerdy uh, software engineer uh, who has a fairly boring marriage and restores classic cars in her spare time, right? That's, that's the me I perceive myself to be. Gamergate created this alternate version of me, which was a, a lying scheming serial exaggerator who sent death threats to herself and, uh, and all this other stuff. And um, you know, it's really their disinformation techniques are are truly uh, they're they're clever almost like i i respect them because they're so they're, they're so effective at taking something out of context and turning it into something that it's not. Um, one of the best examples I have is uh, I released a game on Steam, which is the largest digital platform in the world. Um, and this was the height of GamerGate. And, um, you know, I was just trying to get through my day. My head is primarily, like, thinking about... Porting, you know code that's originally uh for ios and trying to get it to run an x86 architecture right so i get this game ready for pre-sales on steam and the gamer gators find it and start flooding it with oh brianna woo's terrible brianna woo's this brianna woo's that and um as a response to that I wanted to have some part of our forums uh, there dedicated to actually speaking about all the lighting upgrades that we did or the changes to the uh, skeletal meshes, mm-hmm. right? Or the gameplay changes, the right. things I'd literally spent a year working on. So I create a topic there with my kind of uh, gamer humor there and this kind of fatalism that I. I developed after a year of getting nonstop death threats and. It's, uh, I started this topic, it's called, is Brianna Wu a terrible person? Please discuss. And my thinking in that moment was I was going to lock all the nasty comments about me to just a single thread so the rest of the forum could talk about other things. So you and- gave
0: your trolls a space on your forum to have a discussion. You-
1: exactly. I'm like, I'm not going to censor you. Go nuts. I don't care what you say about me. Here's your safe space. Just <laughs> let me talk about, let me talk about my lighting engine upgrades. I spent a year working on this. And, it sounds like and, a good
0: idea in, in theory.
1: In theory, but instantly, instantly, the thing is, oh, look, Brianna Wu is harassing herself on Steam and didn't realize she was logged in with her own account. And this is a lie about me that persists to this day. Um, Another example of this is um, there's there's a, a, a trope out there that Brianna Wu hates people with autism. And the reason for this is Twitter's old font had the lowercase l and the uppercase i look nearly identical. And someone made the Twitter account. Uh, my old Twitter handle was SpaceCatGal, and they made SpaceCatGai. And uh. it looked nearly identical. And they used my profile pic, and they started tweeting all this horrible stuff about people in the autism spectrum, things I would never ever think or say and it catches on fire and to this day that is the storyline about me right uh and you know it's like when people have an idea of who you are uh they're just going to grasp onto anything that fits that narrative and uh It's, it's very frustrating because to this day, you know, this is stuff that shows up in my Google searches. (laughs) So it's unfortunately a kind of horror that you just kind of have to live with. Mm -hmm. That's,
0: that's, that's absolutely mad. And it's, it's interesting you say this because obviously people would say, you know, oh, if you've done, if you've not said anything nasty online, then you've got no worry. But of course (laughs) the reality is that if you said, I mean, if you've said something online that's nasty, then obviously it makes their jobs easier, but it. Certainly doesn't seem to dissuade them from making stuff up if if you've got pretty uh, pretty rosy uh, online history. And-
1: I I I agree with that. I think that we have a culture of being information idealists. Yeah. Uh, uh, online, you know, I think that we're brought up with this idealistic view that the best argument wins. That people are going to evaluate all arguments, think about it, and, um, and come to an accurate decision with whoever makes the most persuasive case. Um, I think we need to move to being information realists. And to look at the studies about how disinformation propagates online. And, you know, the the fact, this isn't my opinion, many studies bear this out, that uh, amplifying a lie makes more people believe it, even if you fact check it. Uh, So I do believe that platforms have a role to play in, um, you know, looking at these kinds of sock puppet accounts that exist to spread uh, and amplify disinformation to people and to try to curb it. You know, um, I think one of the ironies of disinformation is it it weaponizes our ideals about free speech against us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's what makes it so tricky to counter.
0: This brings us to the present day. Eight years on, the question still remains of whether or not we've learned from the experiences of Gamergate. At a glance, it feels like our digital landscape contains as much conspiracy as it does truth. From Pizzagate to QAnon, their frequency and content are as dangerous as they are outlandish. The internet has certainly affected the way conspiracy theories are spread. Yet it remains difficult to navigate, which is why we've recruited a seasoned expert in this field to help us out. I'm joined now by Joseph Yuzinski. Hello, Joseph.
2: Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Yourself? Good. Nice to be with you.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for doing this. So I'd like to start off with, um, tell us a little bit about your educational background, how you became interested in the study of conspiracy theorists.
2: Well, I studied political communication as part of my doctoral degree. And after I started my job as an assistant professor at University of Miami, uh, one of my colleagues came to me and said, Hey, I've got this idea about conspiracy theories, we should study that and my immediate enthusiastic response was no that's stupid Mm -hmm. and if you go back in time 12 years you might remember that nobody cared about this topic very much back then it wasn't a big deal media outlets weren't paying attention and this was pre-Brexit pre-Trump right so it was a very different world and my view was that this wasn't a topic worth studying and it wasn't worth getting involved in. And uh, my, my friend twisted my arm for a few weeks and, <laughs> and uh, um, I eventually said yes. And for me, it became a career. And in some ways, I would like to say that I was you know, prophetic in knowing that the topic would blow up into what it is today. Um, But I had no idea. I thought I would write a book or something like that and it would be on some dusty library shelf somewhere. But it's become uh, one of the prime topics that people are interested in today.
0: I mean, yeah, it's... uh, I mean, we're um, uh, obviously from an educational background and the idea of media literacy and people needing to uh, be more critical thinkers when it comes to uh, what they see online. As you say, you know, pre pre-Brexit, pre-Trump, pre-2016, pre-the-pandemic, you know, these things were of interest to some, but it is nowhere near as mainstream as it is now. And it's incredible to see um, probably one of the only silver linings that have come out of all these things. The fact that people are now aware of how important, um, you know, talking about these and, and dealing with these issues like conspiracy theories and probably the importance of media literacy is now. Would you say from your research um, that there is evidence that conspiracy theories are, are growing and becoming more uh, extreme as a result of the internet? Or would you say that's, that's not the case?
2: No, I don't really find any evidence of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So there's good and bad news. I mean, the bad news. I mean, I'll start with the good news, I guess. I mean, the good news is that things aren't getting worse in terms of people. I mean, that is pretty good ideas. news. Well, so they're not getting worse. The bad news is, it, it was sort of always this bad. You know, all the mechanics that are there now driving these beliefs have always been there. Mm-hmm. So when someone comes up to me and says, "Oh my God, now's the, you know, the golden age of conspiracy theorizing," I say, "Worse than during the Red Scare. Worse than when we were drowning and crushing witches for conspiring with Satan. Is it worse than that? Really? You know?" Then people start to think, "Oh, geez, maybe things aren't quite so bad, mm. right?" and and here's the thing it was if you go back and look at all all the polls you can gather that have been taken in the last 50 or 60 years of polling and look at all the questions that have been asked about conspiracy theories we went back and re-polled all of them last year let's say have have beliefs gone up or have they gone down and for the vast majority they either stayed the same or went down and there was only a handful that went up and most of the increases were marginal at best and not on any of the things that people are talking about as going up, like QAnon or COVID or those things. Mm-hmm. So yes, there are conspiracy theories and yes, some of them are quite popular and believed by you know, shockingly high proportions of the public. But that doesn't mean that it's getting worse over time.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so do you do you think that um one of the things that i guess is is arguably different is the fact that there's a lot it's a lot more in all of our faces in the sense that it's it's a lot easier to um to find these conspiracy theories and also say for example you are a person that kind of has the views that a, a kind of traditionalist incel person has for example right um you know pre the days of social media and the internet and so forth you would be one um in your village or town or whatever but the fact that you can now gather online um it it can embolden you into seeing that there is a community of say a thousand of you obviously in the grand scheme of how many people there are in the world it's still minuscule but there's that idea of strength in numbers right
2: I think that argument is, is largely overblown, okay. and a lot of what's going now, going on now is that we're paying a lot of attention to something, so mm-hmm. there's an assumption that there must be more of it because there's more media coverage of it. But part of the reason for there being more coverage of it is, one, we've had a, a U.S. president and some other events that have driven interest in conspiracy theories, but again, mm-hmm. that's different than there being more of it and that's really important. So Trump shows up, he's you know, engaging with a lot of different conspiracy theories in his rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Journalists sort of have to cover it. Cuz he's the president, right? And then that coverage turns into well, let's talk about conspiracy theories more generally. And eventually what winds up happening is that all the major news organizations now have teams of journalists dedicated to social media, misinformation, disinformation, mm-hmm. conspiracy theories and whatnot so so we're paying attention but again that's very different from saying there's more people believing than there was in the past right and and yeah having you know the world's library in our pocket makes it easier to find conspiracy theories but it makes it easier to find everything Mm -hmm. everything is easier to find so often there's this assumption that oh I can find all my conspiracy theories easy on the because I have the internet now. Well, you can find true things too. <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, let me go online so I can find all my false information, mm-hmm. right? You have the world's library there, and it's a choice for every person what they want to access. But and is it a choice that, though?
0: Because it's- that's really
2: what matters. But people were were able to access these things long before the internet, and mm-hmm. they can access it in all sorts of other places. You could go to library and get all sorts of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. you can go on tv and there's tons of not credible information all over mm-hmm. all over the channels right i mean oh, take yeah. the animal planet channel what what was the biggest show ever on animal planet i think it was the show about the navy mermaid the navy conspiracy to kill the mermaids what was the other big show on animal planet finding bigfoot guess what they still haven't found them <laughs> right and i thought that was a a a channel about real animals Mm -hmm. history channel it's uh aliens built the pyramids and nostradamus predictions and all sorts of other you know not very true Mm. or well evidenced stuff so it's everywhere it's everywhere it's not a function of just the internet and and this is what we have to understand is that the internet reflects everything in society so if something's there, it's because it's not because the internet made it up. The algorithms aren't making up their own conspiracy theories. It's because people, for some reason, are putting it there. And this is the thing. I think there seems to be this view that only because of the internet can people find each other. People always found each other. Major religions formed with billions of people long before there was the internet to, to, to start a Facebook group right? So there are all sorts of groups, all sorts of clubs, religions, movements, you name it, all formed without the internet.
0: On one hand, it's undeniably comforting to hear that the internet is perhaps not the boogeyman we've all painted it to be. On the other hand, the problem still remains that people are seeking out ideas and beliefs online to confirm their own bias. Breaking this cycle is not a matter of simply censoring opinions, tweets, and chat forums. A discontented gamer spewing sexist remarks on 8chan or Reddit is still a sexist offline. That, however, does not mean that these social media platforms have no role to play in the moderation of disinformation online. Had Twitter taken a clear stance against the Gamergate hashtag, would Brianna have been driven out of our home Fearful for her life. It's a question we should all be asking ourselves today.
1: Something I've advocated at Google repeatedly over the years in my many speeches at their corporate headquarters is look, let's let's not even try to censor like if 4chan is going to say something about me or a chan, at the end of the day, there's a certain point where that is a free speech issue, and we don't want people to to delete everything out there. Right. But let's just uprank credible, good faith, sources, mm-hmm. right? There's no argument in my mind that's valid why Kiwi source Kiwi farms, which is a notorious disinformation trolling site, should be ranked above an article in the New York Times about Brianna Blue, right? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, this is Google's algorithm. Um, so what I would advocate they do is, look, Let's just go out there, figure out these sites that are actively um, not credible in the information that they are putting forward and just simply downrank them in search results. That's the most obvious thing in the world to me. And unfortunately, um, I've not been successful in getting Google to enact that policy. yeah, this is ultimately a business decision for them. I've always been really struck that you know, Google will bring me in for speech at their corporate headquarters to really demonstrate their um, commitment to gender equality, right? Yet at the same time, they are profiting from uh, content on YouTube They specifically defaming me and spreading disinformation about me and other, other feminists, right? They're actively making money from this. So, um, the reality is people like to click on dirt, uh, people like the sensationalism, our brains are drawn to extremes. And, uh, this is a, if Google is going to be a responsible platform, Mm -hmm. they're going to have to make an active choice to say, we're going to sacrifice X amount of engagement for a healthier conversation. Right.
0: And, and what you said really, really struck me because and I always find this bizarre, because if you, you know, if we're talking about, you know, an ethical platform, but but should it should it not be a question for the law in the sense that, say, for example, um after this podcast, um we decided to make a company that that sold counterfeit handbags or counterfeit shoes or whatever, that would be illegal for obvious reasons. But yet profiting from counterfeit, from counterfeit information, information that is clearly false and knowingly false is somehow perfectly okay at the moment. Yeah. And I just find that bizarre.
1: I I think it's a real failure of leadership. This is a lot of why I ran for Congress in the United States. Um, You know, you look at the people that are making um, making decisions and look, I'll I'll confess to being your typical america i'm not as familiar with uh who's running your government as they are our own <laughs> but here in the united states uh you know it's it's people remarkably old <laughs> that comprise our uh, our congress and our president i think and, our average
0: counselor is about 65 years of age possibly okay. 70 so we're, we're on the same You've been page
1: this by about five years I'd right say. um <laughs> you know uh the truth is the people they're tasked with regulating these things are, um, they they just simply don't face it. You know, they have staff that deal with these things. It's not important to them. Um, I think that we need, I I do, I do believe that younger generations have a more um, intimate understanding of these problems. And I think that we'd be well-served to have people making decisions that have actually faced uh, these forces before.
0: Do you think we've learned anything from the disinformation campaigns of, of GamerGate?
1: That's a tough question. It, it really is. Um, I think that overall in the game industry, uh, there has been a push on the journalism side to hire more women. There's certainly uh, more women that are, are reviewing games today than there were uh, in 2014 when this happened. I think, unfortunately, there's still not women making it to the senior levels, uh, particularly in the game production side. Uh, when it comes to disinformation, I think it's actually worse than it's ever been here in the United States. Um, you know, we've just seen uh, the election of Donald Trump in America, uh, followed by the rise of QAnon, vaccine disinformation, and, um, you know, it's, it's it's truly dark days here in the United States. Um, I think very sober, uh, measured people are truly wondering if democracy can uh, survive in this current form. And I, I just wanna say one thing for this, You know, when I was a child, I was interested in technology, right? This was a field that I wanted to go into. And I really believed that technology was going to make the world a better place. You know, Um, encyclopedias used to be books in your house. Uh, When I was a child, there were CD-ROMs that you could buy and look up anything you wanted to know. And I think as an engineer, I had this very naive view that technology was always going to make things better. Um, What I came to understand as I got older was technology can make things much worse. And I think there's not much argument that uh, our discourse has gotten remarkably worse since the advent and uh, mainstreaming of Facebook um you know it's coarser there's more disinformation there's very little decorum and misinformation is thriving um well the barrier to really, entry to
0: pump out garbage is, is incredibly low now
1: it, it, it's non-existent um you know you can look at the history of our country when you used to want to uh spread inf- misinformation you would have to buy a printing press right? Uh, right today you just sign on for facebook and make a bunch of sock puppets so um I think that um, you know, Neil Stevenson, science fiction author, once called uh, social media the doomsday machine. And uh, I have increasingly not been able to disagree with that assessment. I think if democracy is going to survive, we need to get serious about regulating these platforms. I,
0: I, I think that's, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's 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 crazy that we, um, that they are in insanely pervasive in our society and it's they have zero regulation uh, at the moment i think it's i think it's a it's a complete failing of of um of our society the fact that this is this is still this is still the case and one thing i wanted i wanted to ask do you feel like gamergates um and the events that kind of led up to and and after it uh, are comparable to the, to the more recent instances of, a, of extremist rhetoric, such as, you know, what happened on the, the 6th of January, the, the insurrection?
1: I, I think it's directly linked. Um, okay. You know, one of the things about Gamergate, um, you know, there's actually a television show that we're working with, uh, Norman Lear's production company, uh, Act 3, right now to bring to streaming. Um, you know, the thing about Gamergate is it started as a scandal in the game industry. Mm -hmm. But the decision we made to do nothing in the aftermath of Gamergate had wide reaching applications for the United States and the world. Let me give you a very specific example. Um, During Gamergate, um, 4chan created 8chan. Uh, 4chan, the community banned all discussion of Gamergate. They went and formed 8chan. Achan chan is the site with literally no rules whatsoever. Um, it is the site where QAnon came from, uh, but more specifically, this was the site where uh, the Christchurch shooter uh, was radicalized and put his manifesto and then went to murder 50 Muslim people in, um, in uh, New Zealand, right, in this kind of mm-hmm. horrific mass shooting that was streamed online. Um, You know, the FBI's decision at that point in Gamergate to not prosecute the people that had um, been conducting such uh, clearly illegal and indefensible things on 8chan, child pornography, spreading dark web uh, credit card information, um, organizing people to threaten to murder a federal judge. Um, you know, we, we presented all of this to the FBI, like with the clearest evidence you could possibly have and pointed them to who was responsible and what and they, they needed nothing. to do to take the site down. And they made a decision to do nothing. And wow. today we see QAnon leading to uh, you know the anti-vax movement and um, to a certain extent, January 6th. It's literally the same people in the same playbooks in the same parts of the platform that are leading to this. So um, I would call Gamergate truly the origin story for our uh, current dystopian uh, politics around the world. Well. War-
0: safeguards do you believe need to be put in place in order to protect ourselves against this kind of extremist rhetoric online
1: well first of all i am one of the reasons i ran for congress is mm-hmm. i i believe that social media should be very um, uh, much more regulated than the degree that it is today mm-hmm. i think they need to be Um, You know, I think there's a certain amount of legal liability that they need to roll, uh, that they play as publisher that would be similar to, uh, say, the New York Times willingly spread uh, disinformation there. I think there's um, a conversation to be had about how to kind of hold them responsible for the uh, things that they publish and choose to profit on. That's a bigger more difficult problems to solve, the, the easiest one to solve is, is this. Um, I think the United States should, uh, in our course of funding the FBI, specifically funded division of 50, agents that uh, will simply prosecute high profile uh, death threats and rape threats online. Uh, if you say it to my face, you go to jail. And I think if you're saying it online, I think that that's something that we need to uh, start doing. I think it would do wonders for the, for the level of civic discourse that we would have. Um, you know, The reality is uh, my friend, Danielle Citron, who's one of the most preeminent legal experts in the world on this. She looked into this and figured out, um, I'm just trying to remember these statistics offhand, but out of, um, I believe it was over 3.5 million documented cases of explicit death and rape threats. She was only able to find, I believe it was eight examples of cases being brought to bear. And wow. six of those involved law enforcement being targeted and getting death threats. So, um, you know, overwhelmingly, the odds are these your case is not going to be looked at or prosecuted. I think that's something as a society we should dedicate mm-hmm. resources to.
0: Gamergate ultimately made us all much more aware of the potential real-life impact of online extremism. Yet, despite increasing evidence of a link between online hate and real-world violence, including mass shootings, law enforcement and many social media platforms still seem to be playing catch-up when it comes to eradicating extreme threats against women in our online communities. We owe it to victims such as Brianna Wu to take action against conspiracy content and online hate instead of simply writing it off as fringe ideas created by immature trolls. with your experience studying um conspiracy theories um what do you think people can do or individuals can do to kind of for lack of better term protect themselves against misdis and, and malinformation that they kind of come across online like is there anything that we can do as individuals to kind of better judge for ourselves what what is misdis and malinformation and and what could potentially be the most accurate truth
2: I think in general, be be very careful with what you choose to believe, you know, just because you hear something doesn't make it true, just because you want to believe something doesn't make it true, and just because a bunch of people say it, and by people, it could be people you know, or media outlets, or politicians you like, doesn't make it true, so guard your beliefs, instead set a very high bar for what you are going to believe, right? So, you know, one problem that people often fall into is that they have one bar set for ideas they don't like, which is very high, and then Mm -hmm. a much lower bar for ideas they do like, like, oh, well, that matches (laughs) what I want to believe, so I don't need that much evidence, so that must be true. Mm -hmm. Um, Set a high bar for everything, whether you like the idea or not, and say, you know, um, I'm not going to fully commit to some idea until... You know, there's agreement by experts or there's a lot of open data and evidence showing this to be true. You know, so don't take cues from Netflix documentaries just because someone made a film about it doesn't make it true. Um, You know, just because you saw a tweet about it from a friend doesn't make it true. Just because your favorite political party said it doesn't make it true. I mean, there's a lot of false things out there and there always were and there always will be. You, you don't have to believe anything you see. So mm-hmm. just sort of step back and say, "This is what somebody's claiming." We'll see if it pans out.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because, um, you know, you, you see this with your day to day, and I think all of us, um, you know, have biases, right? And some of them are completely harmless, and some of them are are, are less so. Um, and I think we'd be in denial if we didn't if we didn't accept the fact that we all we all have a bias of some kind, right? Um, it could be it could be something as innocent as you know what food you like um and if you know you you really you really love chocolate and you come across an article or a documentary that talks about the health benefits of benefits of chocolate you're going to be more likely to want to believe that to be true right so you're going to be you're going to spend less time critiquing and researching to see if that thing is true or not because you're going to want to share it with all your friends and be like look see i was right to eat a pound of chocolate a day um Whereas if you're well, looking-
2: I had those biases for wine and chocolate and right. bacon and French fries and all sorts of things, <laughs> and then when I was 250 pounds, <laughs> I had to say, "Oh, well, maybe my biases are aren't so true, and maybe all these things aren't good for me." So, right. um, at that point, I had to stop eating some of the items. Right, and, so and- it's, it, at some point, we have to be open. You know. We, 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 We have to be open to evidence, right? Mm -hmm. But some people don't. They want to just keep going in whatever direction they're going in and always hold on to these biases and not look beyond them. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the best thing we can do is just say, yeah, there's going to be a lot of information coming at us in all directions from all sorts of sources. And you're not obligated to believe anything anyone says until it reaches a high bar
0: and i think that that high bar is i think where, where the question is isn't it because what does that high bar look like and one of the things that um, i think is important is is, is potentially having that kind, this kind of stuff in schools so i'm making sure that we we understand these lessons that you know you don't just want to be guided by your biases or guided by your emotions just because you you see an article that you don't l- you know you don't like the the outcome of you, you critically analyze that, but you should do the same with every single, you know, bit of information that comes your way, whether you you want to believe it to be true or not. Um, But surely that takes, that takes
2: education, in the sense of knowing what that bar looks like. Sure. And there, you know, I think there's a lot of emphasis on critical thinking, I think there needs Mm -hmm. to be more emphasis on scientific thinking. Right? So when you're in grade school, you're learning out of textbooks. Mm-hmm. as it, and, and, and there's never really time spent on how did the stuff in the textbook get into the textbook? You no know, one says it was a long, hard slog to discover these things. It wasn't like your history textbook you know came down from up on high on the mountain <laughs> you know and, and it was you know delivered truth from a higher power like Ten That's not what it style. is historians had to work at, mm. at developing this. Um, And none of it was easy. And there are still things that that people will disagree with, even though they might be in in a textbook. So um, we can't teach things as if, well, these are things that are true and they're true because they are, right? We assume them to be true because we assume that there was some process of scientific discovery to put them there, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: right? And we don't spend as much time thinking about that. So do
0: you think teaching that process may, um, at least go to some way to, to potentially resolving this issue of, 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 um, people falling into these conspiracy theories, if we understood the why and the how of how these, it could,
2: and again, I apply the same rules to myself that I do everyone else. I mean, this is what I would like to see happen, but Mm. is there good evidence that it would work in the way that I intend? No. Right. So I don't, I, I don't even know. And that's the thing. We don't know what, what what's going to work so well. Mm-hmm. Right. We just don't know. And, but everybody seems to have their own pet solution. <laughs> I have mine, but I'll be the first to admit, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, wedded to the idea. Cause I just don't know if that is what, what would do it or not.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the, um, issue isn't it is the fact that this area is so new these these discussions are so new and this research is so new that um the reality is is that i think it's there was silver there's a silver lining in the fact that these these discussions this research is is, is being done and and we are learning more about um well how, how opinions are formed and how you know how these biases are uh, yeah i exist, don't really I think
2: we're in a post-truth era mm. I think we're in a pre-truth era (laughs) we're always slowly crawling towards truth and it's it's a slow crawl and it takes time and we're discovering new truth all the time and sometimes we take a few uh steps forward and then we go back right Mm -hmm. but but over the last you know a few thousand years it has been a crawl forward over time um but it's not like Six years ago, we were in the truth era where everyone only believed true things. I mean, come on, (laughs) right? that's ridiculous, Um, and and there's no evidence that people are any less truthy than they were previously. Mm. Uh, So um, that's the thing, we're just paying attention to it now.
0: As consumers of this bizarre online space we call the internet, we're all given a choice in how we respond to the information being thrown at us, from all different directions and from all different sources. Before you send out that next tweet or jump on the bandwagon of a trending hashtag, take a second to ask yourself if you're contributing to the wider conversation or taking away from it. The way we can move forward in creating an online space that is healthy and safe for all its users is to stand up against hatred in all its forms. The dots are there, we just need to connect them. Thank you for listening to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina Mackenzie Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all of our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the U.S. Embassy in London. Thanks for listening and remember, stay informed.